from WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr i'm tony Epstein. join us as we dive into the heart of things exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous crazy world we share together lying on your back in the grass You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. Higher and higher, filling it with They sound quite mad, don't they? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? We warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see individuals. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. I realize what I'm about to say come as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. All our sensory and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like. 
yourselves. Think of the possibilities. guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, and he's been a frequent guest on the Magical Mystery Tour. So here we are doing sort of a Valentine's Day show. How would you give it a title? Let's see. Yeah, this show's going to air two days before Valentine's. And, you know, I thought because we're honoring Valentine's Day, and it's also happening within Black History Month, that this would be about love, but a broader sense of love. You know, love that would also include the love of our fellow human beings, you know, our brothers and sisters, and our non-binary counterparts, and of all life in all of its forms, colors, and variations. And, you know, love... You know, the love of the soul, the love from the soul to the soul of each and every one of us and to everything, you know, with that kind of deep, soulful understanding that we're all so deeply interconnected in ways that, that many of us are, are only beginning to discover and fathom. You know, there's a title that that in the anthology that Robert Bly did with Michael Mead and James Hillman, The Rag and Bone Shop of the Soul. And there's one particular chapter where he has the heading, Loving the World Anyway. And I've used that as a theme for one of my shows as well. And it's I think this fits in nicely with what you're talking about, that you know, there's so much focus on all the problems of the world, you know, in terms of general media and, you know, people talking about their lives. And how do we still, I think there's still this whole current of love that takes place, whether it's, you know, from a mother to a brand new baby, to an act of kindness, to all these other things that happen on a day-to-day basis that really aren't, you know, announced or pronounced around the world in terms of this is how it actually keeps functioning. I love that you just brought into this equation the love of a mother for her child, her infant child, because I think if we could bring that kind of tenderness of love to all of us and to all of life, we would have 
such a wonderful world. I mean, that would be the beginning of creating a kind of what one might call a kind of heaven on earth. And I think there's a tenderness in there, Tonio. When I see pictures, for instance, you know, my partner, her daughter, gave birth about a month ago, and there's this tenderness of how the mother is looking at the child, a tenderness and a preciousness. And how does that get reinfused into our day-to-day lives? Yeah, exactly. So here, I'll even start with a poem, and this is a very short one by a poet, um, and I'm not sure where he's from. It's not American. His name is Roque Dalton, and the name of the poem is Like You. Like you, I love, love life. The sweet smell of things, the sky-blue landscape of January days. And my blood boils up and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. And that my veins don't end in me, but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life. Love, little things, landscape and bread, the poetry of everyone. It's beautiful. And, you know, it reminded me of something that one of my guests from several years ago, a professor here at Goddard, described on a previous Valentine's show. She talked about how when we fall in love with someone and we become emotionally entangled, that in an almost literal sense, our blood veins and arteries become interconnected And that when we separate, depending on how we separate, let's say in a more traumatic way, those blood vessels and arteries and perhaps even hearts literally get ripped apart so that we're left bleeding. Yeah. You know, the Hawaiians have their own version of that. They call them aka cords, and aka spelled A-K-A. And they're energetic cords that develop between, and it could be a person and an animal, person to person, whatever, in terms of a relationship. And that at the end of that relationship, those cords no longer have the reciprocal response from the other. And they go through this exact same thing you're talking about from that other perspective you just presented. There's kind of an atrophy that takes place, which is a one way of describing like how the Hawaiians would describe grief because the cords can no longer connect. Yes, exactly. So maybe what we're talking about today is this idea of to what extent and I guess how fully are we going to connect with this crazy world that we live in? Yes, and how much are we going to be able to and or allow ourselves to embrace the heartache that comes with the willingness to open our hearts and to love fully, you know, and embrace all things and all parts of life, including all of, like, particularly in this country, where to embrace and to love people of color and different persuasions, whether religious or ideological or, or the way they look or the way they act, Love can act as a bridge across any chasm when we fall in love. But if we can do that and also embrace the inevitable heartbreak that occurs when we see 
many of these people suffering terribly in our society because of all the systemic oppression and racism and violence that is being perpetrated by people who who I, I can only think are living in a strange world of fear of otherness. And, you know, when we fall in love, as we gradually learn to fall in love with a wider and wider circle of life and possibility and beingness, we can experience so much more realms of pain and heartbreak as we see people suffering around us, more and more classes of people, more and more different groups of people suffering around us, perhaps people who are suffering things that we cannot even imagine because we've never experienced anything like it ourselves. You're getting to a pretty essential idea, the idea that if, let's assume for a second, there's kind of this philosophical idea that we're all here for transformation. And isn't it roomy? And I'm paraphrasing here where he says, fear is what we learn. You know, this is beyond instinct you know, in survival. Fear is what we learn, and love is who we are, and the process of being alive is unlearning those fears that we have been taught and have learned. Yes, and that reminds me of a roomy poem that we all know. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Yes, exactly. So if you'd like, I have a quote here. This is from Martin Luther King, since it is Black History Month. And this is from his Christmas Sermon for Peace that was recorded on Christmas Eve 1967. And it speaks exactly to this very thing that you're referring to. And the quote is, I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow, we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and, as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit, culturally and otherwise, for integration, but we'll still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. That's so beautiful and so profound. Isn't that amazing? He was quite the writer in order, and it's not often that we hear a voice of such conscience out there in the public realm like that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, to refuse to fight hate with hate. To refuse to look. I hesitate to use the term to lower ourselves to that level, but I prefer the notion of standing up for our principles of love and justice and righteousness, but back to principles of love and not giving in because in the face of hatred and violence and injustice, it can be really, really hard to maintain an attitude of love and compassion. There's a kind of presence, I think. It's, well, presence in, in a practice that, you know, we all have our instinctual ways of responding. Sometimes, you know, they're quite valid as far as survival, other things like the, the fear that we learn. But the practice of saying, no, I'm going to do it this way. You know, it was like, like the civil rights movement was so astonishing in the sense that there was all of this nonviolent protest had nothing to do with being armed. It had nothing to do with any of that kind of coercion. It was really like, we are going to stand up for what we believe is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a poem that I wasn't familiar with until after um, our previous president was elected, and I happened to be in Marin County in California, and the poet Robert Haas read this. This is Denise Levertov's poem, and it's called The Fountain. And I think this still speaks to the very terrain that we're in right now. Here's the poem. Don't say, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there. And I too, before your eyes, found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman of that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched, but not because she grudged the water. Only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there is no water. The fountain is there among its scalloped gray and green stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us, up and out through the rock. That's wonderful. And Rumi says, when you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. Yes, that's beautiful. You know, it's like the people that sometimes I, I refer to, you know, like Robert Waterman, that for him, his perspective is the soul is that aspect of us that represents what he would call the loving, and that it's constantly referring to that loving to keep us refreshed, like the fountain in the poem that I just read. And even that the adversarial elements that show up in our lives, the suffering, the crazy things, that even the loving are bringing those challenges to us so that we can grow and we can evolve. And we can evolve to bring and respond from our soul even to tremendous adversity and trauma. Yeah. So it's an interesting perspective because you were really touching on this quite nicely just a moment ago, which is if one adopts the attitude that evolution, the evolution of the soul is why we are here on this planet, and that all of these crazy things that happen are here for our evolution, including the suffering, then 
it really becomes a very interesting journey in terms of how do we go through this process rather than being taken out or beaten up by it. Yeah, it's like it's the process of aligning ourselves to our soul self because our soul self is always present, but we don't necessarily identify with it. We don't necessarily embrace that perspective. We're not even necessarily aware of that perspective. But as we grow and experience and evolve, we can bring more and more, well, we can become more and more aware of that place and perspective and then choose, because we must choose, I think, to align ourselves with that and to come from that place, to be aware of that place and the possibility of coming, you know, responding from that place rather than from our old default knee-jerk places. And there's such an interesting paradox here, which I know you're well aware of, which is that there's that ego part of ourselves that is completely invested in our personal identities, because there's some belief in there, I imagine, for a lot of people that without my identity, who am I? And the soul perspective is very different because the soul really doesn't identify with anything at all because it's just who we really are. And that may be, for instance, love, you know, it may be compassion, maybe kindness, you know, all those sorts of aspects. But it doesn't have a tendency, the soul doesn't say like, oh, yes, you know, like it's always raising its hand in the classroom and saying, what about me? What about me? It's just sitting patiently all along. And it's just a question of whether we want to shine a light on it or not. Yeah, I would say even that perhaps the soul identifies with everything so that it never feels left out, that it never feels incomplete, that it always feels complete and at peace within itself. I love that. I think that's really quite lovely because it really talks about this idea that the soul is completely open-armed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't even need to be open-armed because it is everything that being open-armed represents. Yeah. And I know that... that you know, for some people, the aversion of using the term God, but you could also use the divine, for instance, that the soul is really an aspect of the divine. And just like you were saying, that it's really somehow connected to everything that's happening, taking place, everything that we experience. Right. So, you know, it's such an interesting culture that we live in, Tonio, because it is so... I don't know, largely dependent on identity. And it's almost as if it's gotten maybe even more amplified just within the course of our lifetimes. I think there's always been identity, of course. And this is not to disparage identity because there are simple facts of, say, my identity, who my parents are, heritage, all that kind of thing, skin color. But we've gotten to the point where it's almost as if the soul has been banished and that's, of course, why we read poetry and the arts in particular, to remind us that the soul is still very much present. But I think there's that frustration when one thinks of politics and, you know, those sorts of things that we see in the news, that those are all completely based on identity rather than, so what might be the good for everyone involved? Yeah, and that gets back to the soul perspective with all of this polarizing 
identities. We're also, you know, as we become more polarized, at the very same time, we're also becoming more aware of things that we were not aware of previously. So there's, there's kind of a paradoxical dynamic going on in the world, in our experiences, and in the collective experience. One of, you know, more intense polarized identifications and positioning, but at the same time, a greater awareness of the things that are causing that and relating to that are coming to the surface. So I think it's like we're, as a result of that, many of us are experiencing growing pains. When you were a child, did you experience growing pains? I do remember, and this is such a peculiar memory, that on my last day, when I was age four, I was sitting on this little curb on the edge of our driveway, and I was thinking, oh, now it begins. It was like I was turning a page and becoming older, and there was a real sadness for me of feeling like, oh, this is vanishing so quickly. Yeah. You know, our society is, is going through a major, major episode of growing pains as this just immense clash of polarized identification and greater social awareness, right? Oh, absolutely. And maybe this is just part of the evolution. You know, I know that in my own life that it usually doesn't happen through revelation. It happens, say, like at the end of a relationship, places where I've had to almost like stop whatever momentum I created up to that point and take a moment for inner reflection to start to wonder, well, why isn't this working out the way I had hoped it might work out? When I was a young teenager, I remember experiencing terrible growing pains, particularly in my legs. And it force, I think it forces us to stop in our tracks and we can't help but be aware of it. Can you remember what age was that that you were feeling those pains in your leg? I was in seventh grade, so that means I was 12 and 13. And did you end up doing a certain kind of reflection during that time? Um, I was going through quite a, a lot of change. I had just moved up to Vermont from New York City, and I was going to, you know, seventh grade is the first year of junior high school, and it's the lowest year in high school. And I was a transplant from the city up to Vermont in a new school with people I didn't know, and I was on the bottom rung. And it's a, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's almost like a, I mean, it's definitely a, an evolutionary phase that we all go through. But I don't think I was particularly reflective at the time, but there was the outer growing pains, and then there was also the growing pains that I was experiencing in my life outwardly in general. So you were, when you went up to Vermont, you were the outsider. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, this is connected to this, that we live in at least the culture now, and who knows when we were kids, I think it was quieter, perhaps. But, you know, with all of these media outlets and all of these technological devices, 
that there isn't really a whole lot of chance to just sort of be quiet enough for that self-reflection? Yes. And thinking back to when I was 12 or 13, I had a lot of time for reflection because I was out in the woods. Yeah. And I didn't have transportation. There was no technology. There was nothing. It was heaven, wasn't it? <laughs> um, it could have been heaven, but I remember that winter, we were in a house that was uninsulated, and I think there was like one room that had heat, and it was challenging. It was very challenging, and we were actually living at the very end of a road on top of a, almost on top of a mountain, and it was a bit of a shock, but when you're a kid, well, for me anyway, my life was full of shocks growing up, so it was just another part of the roller coaster ride. Another in the long series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I do have a poem here from Pablo Neruda. It's called Keeping Quiet. This is like, how do we pause long enough to get back in touch with the soul? Maybe to get back in touch with our love. And here's the poem. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the men gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. How would we as a culture come up with that pause? And I think certainly, say, in, in this last presidential election, there's been a certain pause. In fact, I, <laughs> I saw a letter in the New York Times my mother had sent to me, very short. It was like two sentences. And the letter, it was about Joe Biden's inauguration speech. And the letter said, the speech was the most boring thing he's ever heard. And the second sentence was, and boring never tasted so good. Yes, the deliciousness of silence. Yeah. And just that we could take a break from the insanity of whatever had been happening for the last while. Right. And silence is a means and an end. It's like it's a verb. It's a way to get to silence. <laughs> it's a funny kind of thing. And silence is the doorway that magically opens to the place of the soul, to the place of presence, to the place of all possibility outside the realm of our ego and what our ego knows to be.
And that's beautiful, Tonio, what you've just said. And I also wonder too, and I know this is what you promote very much in your weekly shows with the interviews, that because of the lack of silence that's been taking place in our culture, we seem to have lost the concept of general discourse, where people actually, even if you have opposing opinions, can talk to each other and try and get to understand each other a little more, not necessarily for a particular outcome, but just for understanding. Yes, that's so incredibly critical that listening, real listening, can only happen in silence when there is silence within the listener. So in order to listen and become a good listener, and I would extend that to be a, a real human being in this world, to fully engage with everything around us, we have to use silence. We have to practice and embrace and learn to love silence even more than we love the sound of our own voice. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I love it. But I guess the question I would pose to you now that, you know, in America, and I don't know if this is how it is in the rest of the world, but in America, we have somewhere between 80 and 85% of our population lives now in urban and suburban areas. And, you know, it keeps shrinking the amount of people that are living in rural areas. And as you well know, the urban areas are noisy. How do we deal with that situation in the context of this idea of silence? Well, let me preface a response by getting back to something you had asked me. or You asked me if I did any reflection yeah. when I came up to Vermont. Um, I then went back to New York for a year and then came back again for ninth grade. And when I returned, again, I was living in the woods with no transportation, <laughs> I actually very, very clearly remember spending lots of time just sitting or hanging out in the woods in silence and actually auditorily hearing that background hum of the universe in that place of silence where there was no environmental sound. And I used to spend a lot of time in that place. I used to love that experience. And I didn't think about it, you know, at the time. It was just an experience that I had, and I never questioned it or thought about it. But it was a very, very delicious experience. And I guess I just soaked it in to help me cope with the madness of all the the changes and growing pains that I was going through considering all the shifts and changes and craziness of my life swirling around that. So it was definitely happening then kind of as, as a relief, as a uh, counterbalance. But later in life, of course, reflection, inner reflection in relation to my life, outer life, inner life, outer world, inner world, is my main spiritual practice, you could say. Yeah, there's a, a line I ran across recently from Rilke in which he says, the only journey is the one inside. So what about you? 
Oh, I think that for me and my parents, they were not really out of what I would consider the norm for their generation. They weren't particularly artistic. They were not that involved with the arts beyond the fact that they loved a ballroom dance. But they very much represented the status quo, which was what was happening in the post-World War II era. And there was some part of me that the status quo really wasn't enough because it was sort of asking all of us to swallow the pill, swallow the blue pill, I guess, and just accept whatever was happening. And that was, you know, in the 60s, I was already getting, and this wasn't just, you know, like listening to music, but I could feel that there were certain changes that were taking place, and I wanted to sort of educate myself as to what those changes were. So in that process, I kept kind of looking outside of the status quo, you know, discovering Joseph Campbell, listening to Bob Dylan, doing all these things that kept me in touch with this other world. I guess there was always a part of me, and I know that we've talked about this in, in, in your life too, that the fringe, what was happening towards a friend or even on the fringe or outside the fringe, just had a lot more energy and verve compared to what was happening in the status quo. And so then once I started paying attention to those areas, I had to start gauging the things that were happening inside of me. How do I gauge those in relation to these others? To what extent am I you know, going to feel attuned to those other changes, the fringe stuff, or not? And how do I kind of keep myself current in a way? Because I And I still get frustrated. You know, I think of like men's clothing catalogs and I think of, well, <laughs> when will this ever change that it's always going to be dark blue, gray, black, and brown? <laughs> and I think of other cultures like African or in India where the colors are so vibrant, including on men. And of course, in those other cultures, that is the status quo. But here, you know, there's certain things and it can drive me a little crazy as far as, well, is there going to be an evolution taking place or not? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I see that too. And, you know, in the form of suit and tie, predominantly. Yeah. So it gets kind of boring and, you know, and, and I'm not going to talk about political affiliation or anything here, but, you know, to this such an amazing contrast, we are previous president clearly had very little capacity for self-reflection, for looking inside. And now we have a new president for whatever reason, but I think a lot of it probably has to do with the fact of his Catholic faith, who seems to have a pretty good capacity for self-reflection and that and the, the fact that he's gone through a really a fair amount of suffering in his immediate family, the loss of his um, the loss of Bo. Oh, you know, the sorts of things that have happened to him. Mm -hmm. I just wonder how that will inform his actual political action. It remains to be seen. Because politicians have a way of entrenching themselves into the business of politics and leaving real life and the lessons, the heartfelt lessons that we've learned out of the equation. That seems to be a big part of the quote-unquote American way of rugged individualism and hard-nosed, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and these kind of kind of hard-edged values that deny the heart, that deny 
vulnerability, that deny softness, that deny that there are people who are suffering and that suffering is a real experience that's important to relate to and to honor and respect and learn to deal with in a compassionate and humane way. And politics seems to be very mechanical and materialistic, which leaves out at least 50% of the human spectrum of experience. So, um, okay, enough of politics. (laughs) And I think so, too. Actually, I can read a, a poem that'll take us out of there. So here's this poem. This comes from Adam Zagajewski. He's a great Polish poet. He's still alive. And the name of the poem is called Try to Praise the Mutilated World. Here's the poem. Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of wine, the dew, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. You watch the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees heading nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert where music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world and the gray feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. Isn't that lovely? You know, in, in the case of this poem, how he returns to the humanities, you know, return to the thought, to the concert where music flared and gathering acorns in the park, that this is part of our refuge. Mm-hmm. And just to put the final nail in the coffin of the subject of politics, politics, for all its seriousness, about the affairs of life, I think completely misses life. And just like I think we've been talking about that real, the humanity part of it, it keeps talking about it without really getting neck deep in it. Mm-hmm. Without feeling it, feeling what it really is and the essential quality of, of all the people that are engaged in this game, you know, the whole original purpose for politics, which, of course, has become completely lost in our society. Well, maybe if politics was just a representation of the human condition at the moment, to the extent that we've gotten lost in the belief that the ego-centered world is, in fact, the only world, and losing sight of the soul-centered world. I mean, it seems to me that For instance, Black Lives Matter coming along is part of the soul-centered world. Martin Luther King and the civil rights, that's the soul-centered world. People that are fighting for immigrants to be, say, reunited with their families, you know, that have been torn apart in the last four years. That's part of that real world, the soul world. Mm -hmm. So here's a poem. Unfortunately, this poet passed away in the last couple of years. His name is Thomas Lux. 
and the name of the poem is Render, Render. And this is heading a little more towards the love theme. But the poem reads like this. Boil it down, feet, skin, gristle, bones, vertebrae, heart muscle. Boil it down, skim, and boil again. Dreams, history, add them, and boil again. Boil and skim in closed cauldrons. Boil your horse, his hooves, the run-over dog you loved, the girl by the pencil sharpener who looked at you, looked away. Boil that for hours. Render it down. Take more from the top as more settles to the bottom. The heavier, the denser, throw an ache and sperm and a bead of sweat that slid from your armpit to your waist as you sat stiff-backed before a test. Turn up the fire, boil and skim, boil some more. Add a fever and the virus that blinded an eye. Now's the time to add guilt and fear. Throw logs on the fire, coal, gasoline. Throw two goldfish in the pot. Their swim bladders used for clearing. Boil and boil, render it down and distill. Concentrate that for which there is no other use at all. Boil it down, down then stir it with rose water, that which is now one dense, fatty, scented, red essence, which you smear on your lips and go forth to plant as many kisses upon the world as the world can bear. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Yeah, I especially love the way it ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and I think, isn't that what we've been talking about? All these crazy experiences we go through, and how do we, in in essence, encapsulate all those, boil them down, you know, distill them, so that we can still go out and love the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What a great place to be. And I realize that for some people, you know, just the idea of surviving. That's preoccupying all their time, wondering where's the next meal going to be? Where's there going to be a place with a roof? You know, in Los Angeles right now, there's over a million homeless people since the beginning of the pandemic. That's wild. So I'm not sure how do we then get back to this. I think, of course, the personal work. That's where the real change is. You know, I can go out and try and do whatever in the world, but if I haven't, for instance, addressed my anger issues, my sadness, all those sorts of things, resentments, that I really can't be effective. In fact, in other words, we're only as effective in the world to the extent that we have gotten in touch with our loving. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And in our loving to get back to embracing as much of the whole as possible as we're capable of, of conceiving of. Yeah. I have a sort of odd little poem here. It's by Garrett Kaiser. And I'm not familiar with him, but I'd love to hear it. It's called Couples Who Smoke. Okay. <laughs> love the title. <laughs> I like to watch the intimacy of couples who smoke, how deftly he gets the lighter from her purse, how she slips into his pocket for cigarettes, making love so casually while they entertain or mind the kids, 
It's like a telepathic smile, a secret shared without any words. You say what they share is their cancers, but the health in vogue is rarely shared. I love these non-aerobic dancers, outmoded, out of breath, but paired. That's lovely. There's the, you know, like glimpsing into that intimacy between two people, regardless of, you know, whether it's a good outcome or not. There's still just a lovely intimacy there that becomes their own language. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it imbues the act of smoking with heart and soul. The nice thing is there's a very non-PC element to this poem because there's no judgment. Exactly. So, yeah, I think and that's, that's part of how we praise the mutilated world from, you know, that previous poem I read of taking it in in such a beautifully neutral stance that you can even get to a place of appreciation of look at how their love manifests. Mm-hmm. And I guess if I was to ask you a question in relation to this, what would it take, you know, because so many people, I think, I'm not sure if they're even familiar, because we don't really teach it as a culture, this neutral place, you know, that place which is sort of like back to that Neruda poem, how we get back to, you know, keeping quiet, and just like you sitting in the woods, how do we get back to the neutral place if particularly one has never been familiar and is just sort of caught up in the own momentum of their lives. Two variations on the same kind of answer, some sort of accident or crisis, or by the grace of God. And they're both the same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Amazing grace is going to show up <laughs> whether we like it or not. And it often, probably most often, shows up in ways that bear no stamp of grace at all, and that it's only much later that we recognize the grace at the heart of it. Yeah, they can be the extraordinary circumstances, but I also think it could happen, um, but this would take you know, like a poet to, to see it. And I'll read you this E.E. E. Cummings poem, but even in, in the most ordinary of circumstances, to realize there's something extraordinary going on. So the name of this poem is, I thank you, God. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees in a blue, true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and love and wings and of the gay, great happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. <laughs> now the ears of my ears awake and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. Yeah, E. Cummings is pretty amazing. He is amazing. And from his perspective, how do we become so present to even the ordinary 
that we feel that, you know, the, from Joseph Campbell again, that rapture of being alive. Yep. Seeing the limitless extraordinary in the heart of the ordinary. Yes. And I think this goes back to what you were saying, Tonio, that when we have sometimes those difficult events in our lives, it gives us enough of a contrast to maybe start looking at the world a little bit differently and with a little more feeling and, and realize how precious this really is. The very fact that we're even here on this planet to get this experience, that that in itself because you know, there was some quote, it might have been Alan Dawson or someone who said that the chances of us you know, being actually born here on this planet are even less than one you know, compared to the number of grains of sand in the Sahara. That it's just so unlikely that we're here that the idea that we are here and get to do this, that is just extraordinary. And I think that's part of Cummings' poem here is, you know, he's implying this is nothing you should take for granted. So tell me, Tonio, I know that you live in the woods there in Vermont. How much time do you spend staring out the window, if, if any at all? Well, I'm doing it right at this moment. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I spend a fair amount of time, well, not a lot, but, but I have a big window right above my desk, just to my right. So right now I'm watching the snow come down and there's a thin layer coating the trees outside the window. And yeah, I've always enjoyed staring out the window. It's kind of like windows have always been these magical doorways beyond. Yeah. So this is, I think, getting back to that Neruda thing of keeping quiet, that you can just be in sort of a, is it just a receptive mode might be a way of, of explaining it? Yeah, I think that that's what it is. Like when you're staring out the window, when you're really staring, not at anything in particular, but yeah. staring into space, it is a kind of receptivity that you're receptive to whatever might show up in that moment. And is it often that wildlife shows up around your house? Oh, yeah. That must be lovely. So I have a poem here. It's by uh, Wyslawa Zimborska. Are you familiar with her? Oh, yeah, Wyslawa. Wyslawa Zimborska. Yes, yeah, she's great. Another Polish poet. She died a few years ago. So this is titled Love at First Sight. They're both convinced that a sudden passion joined them. Such certainty is beautiful but uncertainty is more beautiful still. Since they'd never met before, they're sure that there'd been nothing between them. But what's the word from the streets, staircases, hallways? Perhaps they've always passed by each other a million times. I want to ask them if they don't remember a moment face-to-face -face in some revolving door. Perhaps a sorry muttered in the crowd, a curt, Wrong number caught in the receiver. But I know the answer. No, they don't remember. They'd be amazed to hear that chance has been toying with them now for years. Not quite ready yet to become their destiny, 
It pushed them close, drove them apart. It barred their path, stifling a laugh, and then leaped aside. There were signs and signals, even if they couldn't read them yet. Perhaps three years ago, or just last Tuesday, a certain leaf fluttered from one shoulder to another. Something was dropped and then picked up. Who knows? Maybe the ball that vanished into a childhood's thicket. There were doorknobs and doorbells where one touch had covered another beforehand. Suitcases checked and standing side by side. One night, perhaps the same dream, grown hazy by morning. Every beginning is only a sequel, after all. And the book of events is always open halfway through. <laughs> That's really lovely. She really explores that idea of, you know, the, that other variation of love. You know, how do these connections take place? Why is it that we resonate with certain things or people or events or locations more so than other things or places or people or events? Yeah, and it, it also related to something you said earlier after reading the E. Cummings poem about the chance, the minuscule chance that we could show up on this planet. Yeah, that and, you know, and, and to what extent, for instance, can I possibly get back to that, say, neutral place so that as something might be unfolding in, say, in front of my eyes or me reading something on the page, whatever's happening, that I can be aware of what's going on and not just turn it into the mundane. And here's a big leap. If you consider the multi-worlds theory of, of reality, which I like, everything, all possibility, exists simultaneously, and it's just a matter of which one we, we find ourselves in, which one we choose ourselves to be in. And I think, to some degree, we have a choice of, at least in terms of where we head, by the feeling that we bring into the present moment. Absolutely. And I love that idea that you're presenting, Tonio, that all possibilities exist at all moments. And to what extent, for instance, am I willing to step out of my routine to allow some of these other possibilities to take place? Yeah. Yeah. And also to embrace this incredibly vast realm of uncertainty, possibility, unknown, whatever. Yeah. It's one of the things I like as a, you know, I'm a, you know, an amateur musician, although, you know, I've played out professionally a number of times, but the idea of playing a song over again that I learned who knows how many years ago and seeing if there's a new place to be explored within the realm of that particular song at the moment I'm playing it, that I'm not just making it sound like I made it sound 20 years ago, that there's actually something still new showing up in this particular moment that I'm playing it. Yeah, exactly. That's the arts. But I'd imagine you're doing that in your own sense with your interviews too. How can you keep those sparks happening so that, because I've heard interview programs where people literally ask, like there's a creativity program that, that my station airs, and they literally ask the same questions every week. 
And it's kind of appalling to me in the sense of why for a creativity program, why do you keep asking the same questions? Why not find out what is happening in that moment to be asking what would be sort of aligned with that moment? Yes, that's an interesting dynamic that you've brought up. I wrestle with that in my interviews because I prepare a lot for my interviews. I I write notes, pages and pages and pages of notes while I'm reading these books. And then I type them out and I refine them. I spend days going over them and, you know, doing my best to, to like hone them down. And then once I get into the interview, my hope is that I will not even need to use them, that when something comes up that I will already have imbibed that information or that question and will be ready. But what's really most important is, as you say, to to respond to what's happening in the interview directly and not be looking at my notes or my questions while the person is speaking so that I don't lose the flow of the conversation. Because sometimes, you know, I never know how the interview is going to go. There are times when, when the person I'm interviewing will just stop. And I'm like, now where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't happen very often, but it, it does happen. And I go into these interviews with a certain amount of insecurity and trepidation. You know, what's going to happen? And will this be a successful interview? How many things will I miss? How many cues will I miss? Um, <laughs> well, but the the good news, though, Tonio, is that I think that uncertainty is actually wonderfully in your advantage because you're really trying to go after the heart and soul of whatever that particular topic is. And it isn't, you know, the kind of interview of, of, so tell me, how did you come to write this book? And how long did it take? You know, all of those kind of very functional, ordinary questions. You really want to dive in and say, so what is this that sort of, you know, got this whole fountain going to get you to this place, you know, in talking about this? And I know, for instance, you love the topic of, you know, human trauma, and not in terms of physical trauma, but more psychological and emotional. And how does one deal with that? Because it's something that we all can relate to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a fascinating area, you know, how we respond to the challenges in our life and, and how we evolve in that way. And how aware are we of that dynamic and what are we doing with that? Or what are we not doing with that? Because it sort of boils down to awareness and reflection again. And in the realm of trauma, it's a painful area. It's, it's an area that we often don't want to re-experience. We don't want to think about. We tend to bury these unpleasant and painful past experiences. And yet those over and over again, prove to be the stepping stones of our ongoing growth and evolution if we have the awareness and courage, but mainly the awareness. Because I think when we become aware to a certain degree, courage is no longer even the issue. It just becomes the next logical step along the way. Well, and you're doing in your own kind of gorgeous way, Tonio, you're dropping into the loving because it takes a certain kind of love 
for even the inspection of those very difficult events that have taken place in our lives. You know, it's a level of self-compassion. And of course, the tendency, as you mentioned, is really, I don't really want to talk about it or go there. And the point isn't to relive it. The point is to get just enough distance. And I think that's where our own love, our own self-compassion can step in, get enough distance to whatever took place to start looking at it and saying, hmm, so what took place here? To what extent did I participate? Is this just the hand of the divine trying to send me in another direction? You know, all those kinds of things. And then you can work from more from the loving point of view rather than a fear point of view. Right. How can I stay in a perspective and place of love even with this in my lap or with me in it? <laughs> yeah. You know, yesterday I was, you know, I swim laps every other day and, and I was already involved and switching over to a lane because the lane had become available. And there's a woman who swims. Well, I usually see her only in the summer. And we had one conversation beginning of last summer oh, for about an hour and a half, mostly about one of her children. And then yesterday she was there. I haven't seen her for months. And she starts in a whole conversation about having COVID and all these problems and how she had gotten suicidal and all these sorts of things. And she really wanted to talk, and I really wanted to swim, but I had to really enter my compassion. And I was even practicing Ho'oponopono while this was all taking place, because as soon as anybody mentions the word suicide, I really feel like it's my obligation, if nothing else, to be listening. And I can't fix anything, but at least to be present, because it's not like I want to turn someone away and say, hey, I have better things to do than your contemplation of suicide, or at least direct them you know, to somebody who can give them help. So I had to take a pause there. And it was 20 minutes that she you know, wanted to talk about all this stuff. And it was interesting. And I did what I could as far as you know, doing the Ho'oponopono. And I gave her a couple suggestions. And you know, perhaps she might want to try those out. And then we went on. And it was like, well, what an interesting day that this would show up. And I chose to respond the way that I did. I mean, by the time of the, the end of this 20 minutes, I was still in the water. My whole body was shivering. Uh, because I was in motion. <laughs> so it was just what showed up. And then I, I just responded accordingly and did what I could because I wanted to reassure her that somehow if she could hang in there and just find slightly different perspectives, maybe use self-forgiveness statements, she could find a way to another perspective. Yeah. And getting back to what you were saying about bringing love into our lives in relation to everything. Um, how did that occur in your life? Was there a particular event in your life or a particular time that you came to that realization or that level of experience in your life? It's when everything fell apart at the end of a relationship. You know, and I wrote about it in the book. You know, it was like being over in Hawaii and I hadn't been sleeping because my nervous system had been so activated. And it was one of those situations where it was hard to comprehend what actually just had happened at the end of this relationship. Someone who had checked out and, and, you know, no explanation, no nothing, and hardly even any signs at all. So 
I had wanted to drive up to Volcano National Park and watch lava flowing. And as I was driving up to the park, you know, it, it gets cloudier and cloudier as you go up in elevation there on the big island of Hawaii. Then I could really feel viscerally, and I'm not a suicidal kind of person, but all of a sudden this feeling came over me. And I said to myself, wow, this is the beginning of the line where one starts contemplating the actual mechanism one might use to commit suicide. And I was listening to a very heavy piece of music. I immediately turned that off, opened up all the car windows, let all this fresh air in. And it's like, oh my God, you, you know, I, I could, I mean, I really viscerally could feel it. Like, how am I going to commit suicide? Because things had just gotten so bad in my own life. So I continued on, then ended up going down in lava fields. And there in the lava fields, I was doing this hike and it was all this fresh lava. And there were signs that saying, you know, be aware. But during the day, you can't really see it. At night, it's this kind of orange glow when you see the lava flowing. But during the day, it creates kind of a silver gray coating as the hot lava hits the cooler air. And as I was hiking in there, all of a sudden, I'm standing in this sort of like little indentation. And I realized that I was getting surrounded by lava because I could see the heat rising off of, you know, these substance all around me. And I really had to get it together from here's this crazy day already contemplating suicide. And, and this really grounded me very quickly. So I had to start figuring out how am I going to get out of here? And, and so I really started looking where there was not heat rising. And I could find a spot, say, about four feet away that I could maybe jump to and hope that it was going to be solid enough. And it worked out. And I had to do this two or three times and got out of there. And I knew at this point, First, I was just like in tears, going like, oh my God, I survived. And I knew that this was pretty much the low point, and I had to figure out. And it was like such a moment of humility, because everything had really been kind of taken away from me, that it's like, okay, so how am I going to completely start this whole program in a new way? And that was the beginning. And so from that point on, between workshops and therapy and reading and getting out in nature and doing all this and realizing, particularly when one gets that close to the edge, you really start realizing the preciousness of being alive. And with that preciousness, then that love can't help but flow in. So no matter what happens, you want to live with your heart open? I wanted, well, first, of course, from the very elementary place, I just wanted to live. And then that the choice, as you just mentioned, so am I going to do it the old way, which was just sort of the old conditioning, the codependence, all that kind of stuff? Or could I find a new way that would allow for the very thing you just mentioned to do this in a more open way with hopefully different results in the long run? Or... Even if the results are not always different, to get to a place where the desire to live with an open heart is stronger than the desire to protect oneself from the pain of heartache. And I agree with that. And at the same time, there's a very pragmatic part of this, which my belief is that life is giving us all, everyone on this planet, continual feedback from moment to moment to moment. And that if we start paying attention to that feedback and start sort of re-navigating according to that feedback, it really does get better. Yeah, I think that's true because 
when we're engaging in that dialogue by becoming receptive to that degree, we are quite literally engaging in a full-on dialogue, conversation with the world around us. Yes. And when we're doing that from a place of receptivity, then I think the world also opens up to us in a way that matches our openness. And there's another little piece in here, too, because the receptivity, I think, is the first perception that's required. Then underneath that is this very interesting place of improvisation. So as I'm perceiving the world and seeing whatever is going on around me, then how do I improvise in that moment to be that present to flow somehow with that moment or if I need to, you know, change something? Yes. I think improvisation unfolds when we learn to trust in ourselves and our own innate ability to engage in the unknown. Yeah. and that there's no security to be found in it. So it's been so interesting, and, and I should ask you your reflection on this. At the end of 2020, you know, when I'd be reading articles and just like hearing podcasts, things like that, and so many people referred to 2020 as the worst possible year of, you know, like the last century, mostly due to the pandemic and their lives being upended. And so, for instance, I was talking to um, the graphic designer who helped me with my book, and we were talking about websites and all that yesterday. And I said, so how did it go for you last year? And she said, oh, Rick, I lost 60 pounds. Things were great. <laughs> and I think in my own life, how, you know, of course, I don't live in an urban area. So all the things that I would have depended on were not upended. For me, it really didn't change a whole lot as far as like going out in the woods, ended up in a relationship, all these wonderful things happening. And I've just learned a new kind of prudence. There's my adaptation and improvisation as far as, oh, I have to deal with the world this way because there's a thing going on. But I haven't been taken out like a lot of people that, and I think particularly in urban areas, it's been far more difficult because I can't even imagine the thought of being quarantined, for instance, say like in Wuhan for eight months at a time, not being able to even leave your apartment. Or being isolated in New York City, where you normally would have so many wonderful venues and forms of entertainment and joy and pleasure, all shut down and unavailable, yeah. and yet tantalizingly beyond the reach of your fingertips. Just a closed door away. Exactly. <laughs> In your face. <laughs> so it is interesting because, you know, the larger picture is, you know, I wonder in relation to the pandemic, you know, to me, it's just like in nature, to what extent are we adaptable as humans? To what extent are we willing to evolve? And to what extent also, now we're into this larger question. I was talking to someone a few months back and I was asking her about vaccines and she said she was a little uncertain on a personal level, but she was very certain on a spiritual level, i.e. for the benefit of everyone, she was going to get a vaccine, which was really, there was that loving showing up again, which I thought was so beautiful. She said, this is going to be the best thing for the planet. Therefore, she was going to put whatever personal questions that she may have inside. She was putting those aside for what she perceived as the best good of our humanity. So here's a Ted Kuzer poem. It's called Late February, the first warm day, 
and by mid-afternoon the snow is no more than a washing strewn over the yards. The bedding rolled in knots and leaking water, the white shirts lying under the evergreens. Through the heaviest drifts rise autumn's fallen bicycles, small carnivals of paint and chrome, the octopus and tilt-a-whirl beginning to turn in the sun. Now children stiffen by winter and dress somehow like old men, mutter and bend to the work of building dams. But such a spring is brief. By five o'clock, the chill of sundown, darkness, the blue TVs flashing like storms in the picture windows, the yards gone gray, the wet dogs barking at nothing. Far off across the cornfields, staked for streets and sewers, the body of a farmer missing since fall will show up in his garden tomorrow, as unexpected as a tulip. So there's life reasserting itself once again, and you know that unexpected thing, which hopefully we can be open enough and prepared enough to deal with when it shows up. Yeah, and as always, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you again. Oh, Tonio, it is just a delight for me. And I have one very, very short thing again from Rumi. Goodbyes are only for those who love with their eyes. Because of those who love with heart and soul, there is no such thing as separation. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much, and until next time. Thank you so much. That was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul.
that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And if you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can hear this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>